From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Republic acquires crowdfunding platform Cedars, former TSB CEO launches a money-sharing social network, and department store Harrods agrees a buy-now-pay-later tie-up with Klarna. All this and much more on today's show. Before we start, we just want to tell you about something we're cooking up at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. If you've been in payments for any length of time, you've seen the number of payment solutions explode. That's great for consumers, but incredibly complex for merchants and developers. That's where Primer comes in. Primer is the world's first automation platform for payments. With Primer, merchants and developers have all the underlying infrastructure and Lego blocks they need to build the best buying experiences for their customers. Learn more and book a demo at primer.io. Welcome to episode 588 of Fintech Insider, the award-winning Fintech Insider, no less. Thank you, Investing Reviews, for naming us the best financial services podcast of 2021. It's an honor we do not take lightly. And if you like leaving reviews and you're listening, go ahead and leave us a review right now. Uh, It really helps others find the show. My name is Simon Taylor, and I'm joined on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, the one and only Tim Hurd. Tim, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm very well. I'm feeling uh, feeling pretty festive today, wearing my... uh... My Christmas jumper, as it's 11FS Christmas jumper day, so all good. Tis the season, but fintech is always in season, and we are joined by some <laughs> phenomenal guests uh, making a welcome return. We have Kirsty Grant, who's the CIO over at Cedars. Kirsty, good to have you back with us. Thanks very much for having me. Nice to be back. You are going to be talking about a big week for Cedars in the not-too-distant future. How are you keeping? It seems like it's been a crazy one for you guys. It's been a crazy few months, yes, uh, and a whirlwind couple of weeks, but uh, all good things. We're really excited. Hopefully you're looking forward to a break. Also returning to Fintech Insider, we have Ruby Hinchcliffe, who is a reporter at FT Advisor. Ruby, lovely to have you with us. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing really well, thank you. Thanks for having me again. It's a pleasure to be back and covering a bit of my old patch. So I do do a bit of fintech now, but it's more focused on financial advice. It's quite fun to, to go back to some of my old haunts. Yeah, you know, come hang out with the fintech crowd. You know, we, we're we just where it's at, especially this time of year. And it is, of course, the most wonderful time of the year, which is coincidentally my favorite Christmas song. Uh, and it's the most wonderful time of the year for fintech news. Uh, let's start with, uh, there's a company called Republic that's acquired a UK company called Cedars for $100 million to push into Europe. So, of course, uh, Cedars is the UK equity crowdfunding business. Um, and it was also the first ever regulated um, equity crowdfunding business in the world. And it's pushed more than £1.5 billion sterling, so about $2 billion US through the platform during its history. Uh, Republic, of course, is a leading US fintech company that allows people to invest in private market equity such as debt or crypto offerings. Uh, And Republic has almost a billion dollars under management through its asset management practice. Prior to this deal, uh, Republic and Cedars had gotten a longstanding partnership. uh, And the acquisition of of Cedars follows Republic's recent $150 million Series B financing. So lots going on here. Kirsty, naturally, I think it's probably right that we come to you first on this. So what does this mean for Cedars going forward? (laughs) <laughs> that we honestly couldn't be more more excited about it and like delighted to get the chance to come here and talk about it um, now that it's out there uh, it's sort of uh, secret within the within the company for a while now that we've been working on this 
um, but really excited. And yes, it's an exit in that it provides sort of a liquidity event for, for many of our shareholders. Um, but really, we see this as a, as a partnership with uh, Republic to carry on our mission of making equity finance accessible to the best of the you know, UK and Europe startups and scale-ups. Um, CETA's leadership team is staying on, I'm staying on, um, and the deal also comes with a commitment of capital into our business here in Europe um, so that we're able to sort of accelerate our plans for European growth. Uh, in particular at the moment, regulation is about to open up uh, what we can do in terms of equity crowdfunding across Europe. Uh, so a great time to have that kind of firepower behind us. And then that was going to be um, my next question, really, just kind of pushing on, you know, what's the intent, what's the future for Cedars sort of look like, uh, given given uh, what's just happened? Yeah, so initial focus is very much um, on accelerating that growth in Europe, um, as I said. Um, you know, I think ultimately long-term goal is uh, creating more and more access for investors um, to just a greater variety of deals sort of globally throughout the world, um, not just on their home patch. Um, but, uh, you know, in the, in the nearer term, um, you know, there's complexities that come with that. And I think we've probably got the right team to, to solve it. But in the nearer term, I think you'll just, you'll see probably more of Cedars in Europe um, and uh, new products, features, et cetera, sort of starting to come through onto the platform. Yeah, and help me understand, uh, because I know you guys had a, a partnership with Republic for, for quite some time, but um, what's the uh, thinking, given they do quite different products in the US as well? Is there some sort of um, crowdfunding meets crypto? Is uh, the conversations along those lines, or, or is all of that, we're just going to have to wait and see? Um, there's a bit of that. So that we do have, you know, crossover in terms of um, cre- the crowdfunding element of the business. They do, they do do that as well. And we've had this partnership for a while because we do co-raises. So most recently, the likes of Glint were able to raise on both Cedars and Republic at the same time. Um, but then beyond that, you're right, they have some different product offerings. They have sort of investment into real estate, gaming, um, they're doing songs at the moment, um, they have crypto. So you probably start to see some of that come across. Um, equally, they don't have a secondary market, and we do. So um, we look to take that across the US um, as well. Interesting. Uh, Ruby, what are your thoughts when you saw this story? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not surprising, is it? You know, you, you tried to, to go with a UK company. It didn't happen. So you needed the, like you said, the liquidity. It was kind of bound to happen, um, I guess. I mean, I know we're going to touch on this later, sort of the competition markets authority element um, of it. But I do think it, it poses some really interesting questions about future deals. And I guess, you know, fintechs, uh, is the regulator going to look differently at this now? Um, I think so, because I think it, m- it must have expected that you go with someone, perhaps not your your rival. But I think that um, now it's probably thinking, oh, should we now be sort of thinking ahead now, one step ahead as to what will the company do next if we stop them from going with a UK um, buyer? Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's probably worth for listeners that aren't familiar. Um, there was a blocked merger uh, with Crowdcube, who's another uh, equity crowdfunder in the UK, by the UK's Competition and Markets Authority early this year, as, as apparently stifling uh, the UK's potential to boost startups. Um, but I mean, uh, I, I mean, Tim, I'd love your thoughts on that. Do you think the CMA was short-sighted? Um, will it have something to say about this one? Is it? Does the geographical thing help us? How, how do you think about the, the role of competition in this space? I mean, I think 
competition in any industry is is obviously vital to ensure that the end product is is of a high enough standard to 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 be attractive. I think when it comes to crowdfunding in general, um, my opinion is there's a from the startups that I've worked with over the years, there's almost a, a reticence to go to to crowdfunding rather than VC, for example, because I don't know whether it's just seen as um, uh, sort of a lower market or or, or less attractive or less prestigious, certainly. Um, And I think unless we get uh, or jump over that hurdle to an extent and allow that reticence to be removed and allow crowdfunding to be seen as a a really strong option and probably an alternative option to to VC, which I think the regulator needs to help with to change that perception, then I think um, that's going to be an area of, of struggle going forwards. It's interesting how much perception matters. I mean, there are the likes of Revolut, who I think used Cedars at one point, and then there's uh, there's Monzo and there's Free Trade. There are the, the darlings of UK fintech are quite happy to 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 use crowdfunding. So that perception, um, it's it's a shame to hear is is still out there. Um, how do you think about this, Kirsty, in terms of um, sort of the the future and going forward? Are you concerned about uh, you know how this might be received by various audiences and indeed your own customers, or are you are you feeling uh, good about what this means for? for your customers in the market? Yeah, delighted about what this means for our customers. And to come back to the CMA point, I mean, we personally, I think this is a a far better deal for for us, um, for our customers um, and for us personally in the company uh, than than the sort of the blocked deal. Um, So sort of somewhat thankful for the accidental favour that the CMA did for us there. Um, But I do, you know, I take Ruby's point. I think this is probably a bit of a shame for kind of UK fintech and, you know, the chance we had to build a, a global leader here in the UK versus sort of now on the path to build this this global leader kind of largely US owned. Um, but, you know, I think it is for our customers, it's going to be only good news in terms of what we're able to deliver. Yeah, possibly short-sighted from the CMA, but um, maybe well-intended. Um, I, you mentioned new EU legislation um, that I think came into action from the 10th of November. Um, and so there's a definition of crowdfunding service providers. Can you unpack this a little bit for our listeners and um, why historically this hasn't been so much of a thing on on the rest of the continent outside of the UK? Yeah, absolutely. So when you're, you know, as all listeners will know, uh, you know, we don't have unified laws across uh, the EU. When it came to crowdfunding, uh, you would, um, to sort of be licensed um, to make the financial promotion in each in each country, you'd need to be regulated in that country. Um, and to what is now coming into play is a, you can get regulated in the EU um, and you can uh, sort of follow one regime um, across um, across the all um, all member states. Um, now we have always been open to uh, European companies, and you'll often see European companies raising on cedars, um, and that's on a reverse solicitation basis. That that works great if most of the audience and most of the investment you're expecting is coming from the UK, where we're regulated. But it really restricts what we're able to do in terms of marketing those offerings to investors um, in the home state of the country. Um, so this regulation is going to allow us to do a whole lot more around that um, and I think will make crowdfunding a much bigger thing in Europe and for European startups. Ruby, what are your thoughts on pan-European fintech? Is, is that ever going to be a thing or is it is it uh, sort of a pipe dream? It is funny, isn't it? Because a lot of the time companies will launch and be like, we're global from day one. And it's like, what does that actually mean? It means you market to everyone, but you're not actually global and you've not got the regulation under your belt and and, and et cetera. But I think that sort of going 
back a little bit to what Tim was saying as well about the appeal of crowdfunding and perhaps how it's seen and is it seen as a lesser or a better way of investment I actually think it's a really great way of sort of building support for your brand from the ground up Um, and we've seen that with free trade right like their forums and how they try and get people really involved every step of the way that can always be your worst enemy right because you've also got an army and people that are there to point you out when you go wrong but I guess it's a really good way of getting feedback from your audience and so I think that that kind of model um, is going to work across Europe um, and I think with the, these regulations, it will be even easier. And there is such an appetite across Europe um, of sort of startup founders to really kind of listen to their communities. Um, so I think that it's a really good model. Um, and if the regulation is going to make that easier, then I definitely think it's going to grow even more. And I think possibly on that point, um, maybe at the sort of the end user and the investor, right? Are they, from my mind, and I have, I have a small brain, so so I can't really understand these things, but I always find um, crowdfunding a little bit confusing <laughs> in the sense I'm like, well, why am I getting a return? Um, and it's kind of variable depending on, on the company. Um, I actually did, speaking of Revolut, try and sign up for uh, that particular round of crowdfunding. Um, I think that opened at like 9am on a Sunday or a Friday and I was hungover, so I missed it. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a bit tricky sometimes I find as the actual investor being, particularly if they're not particularly smart like me. Yeah, I hope, Kirsty, you're, you're seeing that education thing start to come into the market and, and people start to get it. And, and I'd be interested in like sort of user growth and repeat use of the platform. Are you seeing that somebody's a one and done or do people come back and do more once they've got in? And, what, and I don't know if you have off the top of your head any numbers you can share. Yeah, I mean, what we see in our user base is probably like sort of two or three different types of behavior. You know, you've got the you know, everyone knows Revolut. You hear Revolut's raising on Cedars and that classic kind of, um, you know, what Tim's talking about in terms of I sign up, I want, you know, I'm a fan of Revolut. I don't really understand crowdfunding. Uh, I don't know anything about Cedars, but I'm there to put my, you know, £10 or £50 in uh, to be a fan of Revolut. Um, and those, you know, those types of users are great and are great because they're sort of an advocates of that company um, and they may or may not go on to invest further um, on the platform. Um, but then equally, we have kind of the portfolio builders, you know, people who have been investing on Cedars for, for years now who are, you know, putting, you know, really considered amounts, um, often sort of starting out small and then, you know, increasing over time as they get more confident in um, how it works and the platform and, and building really, really significant portfolios. Um, so we're seeing both of that. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, I'm afraid. Uh, sorry to put you on the spot, but I, I had to ask you. Some people just are, are walking libraries of numbers. And, you know, I thought, Kirsty, you had that look about you. I'm going to be I was also going to say, I mean, interesting, um, you both touched on the idea that there's sort of still some snobbery, right, I guess, around crowdfunding or that it's seen as lesser. And that's probably going to be the challenge for us in Europe. I think we've in large part gotten over that in the UK. I mean, I know you still hear it sometimes, but really less and less. And these days, rarely do I hear that from a UK VC. You know, the prominent VCs here really understand that the, the role that we can play in the market um, and the benefit that we provide to the ecosystem. And I mean, even now we have some of the VCs raising part of their funds on Cedars. So uh, we raised for Passion Capital earlier this year and Eileen's a huge supporter, raising for Jam Jar at the moment. Um, Seed Camp's done two funds on, on us. So it tends to be the people somewhere in the middle, other than angel investors, who we probably have displaced somewhat, who are, who, who take that view. Um, but I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I definitely don't want to underestimate the probably the, the job we've got in front of us to ensure that that sentiment um, flows through in Europe. 
Long may then continue. Alrighty, I'm going to move us on. Um, the next story is about a former TSB CEO. Um, if you're an international listener, TSB is one of the high street banks in the UK. Um, and this former CEO is launching a money-sharing social network called Loop. I don't know what a money-sharing social network is, so let's hope we can find out. So Paul Pester uh, is the former TSB Bank chief executive. And uh, Sky News reports that Pester has teamed up with Anthony Thompson, the Metro Bank and Atom Bank founder, and former Compare the Market chief Matthew Donaldson. So this is like OGs of fintech and building banks right here. (laughs) To set up Loop, uh, which began beta testing last week, City sources said that Loop had raised a round of seed funding from a group of wealthy investors and was preparing for a larger Series A to take place in 2022. Uh, Mr. Pester and his co-investors are understood to have identified a growing trend of informal money sharing amongst friends and family valued at more than £12.5 billion sterling annually in the UK. Loop's pitch to investors is said to have predicated on the fact that this is an area of consumer finance um, that is not supported by banks or the wave of app-based neobanks, which have emerged over the last decade, such as Monzo, Starling, or Zopa. Interesting thoughts. Do we need a social network for money? That's kind of what Venmo does in the US. Uh, Ruby, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of interested to know how they're going to build out their USP, right? Because we, yeah, like you said, there's Venmo and then, you know, we've got Monzo do like link shares within their community. So does VibePay, they do VibeMe, which is a smaller fintech in in the UK. And so there are things already out there. So I think labeling it as the first of its kind is a little bit misleading. Um, and but it's often something that you know PRs like to do to get the word out there. So I think that I'm a little bit hesitant about the USP, um, and then I also am a little bit hesitant about the the team behind it. Um, I mean, as we'll probably go into, the, the history of TSB has been a little bit <laughs> struggled of somewhat. Um, it's you know, and Paul left the the year that everything sort of went a bit wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe um, for, again, for international listeners, um, Ruby, it might be worth explaining what happened with TSB and uh, what happened with Paul. I don't know if you've got those details in front of you. Yeah, sure. So, so I mean, so Paul joined TSB in September 2013. He left in September 2018. And 2018 was the year that TSB um, tried to do a major sort of IT migration and they ha- ended up having a week-long outage um, which obviously left lots of customers in the dark. It also um, led to sort of customer fraud. I think it cost the bank um, sort of hundreds of millions in the end, I think around 200 million. Um, and it also totaled a loss before tax for the year in excess of 100 million. Um, and then it's sort of that later that year, the Treasury Committee looked into it because it was such a huge deal. And they essentially said that Pester had lost the conf- they'd lost confidence in Pester basically. Um, and then he left sort of shortly afterwards. And I, what I think I, I have a, perhaps a bit of a qualm with is the fact that he was there for the build up. He was there for the breakup, but he wasn't there for the cleanup. So how much has he actually learned from the experience? He sort of left before TSB had to sort of build it all back together. Um, and, and that's the sort of question I have. Yeah, and this is a bank with, what, uh, three, four million customers in the UK, so a meaningful amount of customers when you consider the UK population. And, of course, they were trying to migrate their core banking system. This is where the money actually sits. And customers had things like um, some customers suddenly had 10 times the money they used to have. Some customers couldn't get in their account and all their money was gone and they were missing bills and they weren't able to buy food. So, you know, the consequences of getting this wrong are massive. And I often 
give TSB as the case study for how not to do core banking transformation. Um, and, and look, to be fair, there's a lot of nuance underneath that. They almost got it right, but they tried to do all of the change over a weekend, which is really like trying to transplant an entire continent in a weekend. It's it's an incredibly difficult task, and it was almost impossible to get right. So credit to everybody that works at a bank. I know how hard that was. That is not an insult to you guys. Um, but Tim, why are these people the right people to launch a social money app, Venmo for the UK? I mean, I, w- I was actually working um, in a, a major global bank doing a, a transfer at this moment in time, right, and transitioning customers from one system to another. So this story was a bit of a, uh, <laughs> it was a bit scary. But um, look, I think, I hope they're not falling into the trap of thinking, let's get, you know, some big names together, sort of Avengers style, and therefore the product is immediately going to be a success. I mean, the Avengers were a success. But I think in, in this case, you know, getting some big names together doesn't mean the product's going to be successful because I think my opinion on this is it's it could be a useful product, but it feels like it's in the wrong market in the UK because certainly if you look at some of the economic models that are more family-based, particularly in like Southern Europe and, and parts of Asia, for example, where people actively pull money together. So, for example, you know, places like Greece... Um, where the wider family, you know, aunts and uncles and so forth, will get together to fund uh, university for you know their their cousins' cousins' kind of kids and stuff like that. That to me seems like a stronger use case. Whereas in the UK market, you know, it, it sounds like it's touching a little bit on things like Splitwise, which kind of cover a bit of the, the the way that we would roll it here. I don't necessarily think we we pool money, and that might just be my experience. But you know, I mean, there's all kinds of use cases like um, charities and communities and school trips and there's a bunch of stuff that's happening in checks and cash today that you can start to displace and if they're going after that sort of parent age community age segment of the market then maybe I mean the the interesting one for me here is Anthony Thompson who built Metro that didn't go after the millennial or the the younger digital savvy consumer it went straight after the high street and straight after the older customer so and he also built Atom which is the digital bank that has done better with older generations uh, historically so th- there may be something there but to your point tim like the for the under 35s the under 40s everybody just uses monzo if if you're in the us everybody uses square everybody uses uh, venmo and nobody uses zelle um, apart from really old people and, and and actually the sort of the challenger banks the neo banks here have almost filled that gap a little bit and we have real time payments whereas in the us trying to probably is easier to send a check or give somebody cash um, before Square and Venmo came along. So I'm interested, Kirsty, in in your views on this one. Um, Do you think that this experienced exec team can get it done? And do you think that this friends and family sort of borrowing, sharing of money use case um, is and the pooling of money, like Tim said, is, is a real need? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to read too much into exactly what the solution they're building is at the moment. But the the focus on lending to each other sort of between friends, I, I just couldn't quite understand the how you build for that and what, you know, do you suddenly formalise it? Are you actually talking about kind of, I guess, putting lending terms in place in between family and therefore adding a cost presumably to lending between friends and family, in which case does that you know, does anyone actually use that? You know, and they had some interesting stats around the number, the amount of money that's informally lent amongst friends and family. Um, but I think if you formalise that, you, you you probably kind of kill that market, don't you? Yes. Yeah, is that something we 
want to encourage because I think, you know, it's shown that money is one of the things that can really cause people to fall out, right? So I don't know. Oh, I guess there's a, another way of thinking saying, well, if you put some structure around it, is it is it better? But then why wouldn't you just, for example, why wouldn't Facebook underpin or meta, I guess, as they're now called, um, underpin WhatsApp, like WhatsApp groups with this kind of functionality? Because I've often thought that would be quite nifty because then you've got the social group first and then the kind of payment solution pooling mechanism second, which I think is sounds better to, to, to my mind anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. Or, you know, on your sort of Revolut and Monzo where you are yeah. sending each other money, even being able to tag it as like loan, you know, a flag that you just know that, that you're, you're expecting that to be paid back. But actually kind of formalising that loan, I feel like, would make people pretty uncomfortable. But there's some good research that suggests one third of the UK population lend and borrow to um, money from friends and family each year, as you say. That's that's a significant amount of the population. And the city regulator has estimated that six million adults borrowed from friends and family during the pandemic each month. So it is something that's happening. Here's an app that helps you do that and keep track of it might be one thing. But yeah, as you say, am I now profiting from my family? Is that getting into weird territory? Uh, and, and as you say, Tim, I think you make a great point that there are communities who've been doing this informally and acting as informal banks through communities. Uh, and there may be other use cases we, we don't see. But let's keep watching this one for sure because there's, there's, uh, there's, there's lots to do. And building in fintech is not easy as, as everybody listening to this knows. We are just going to take a quick pause here whilst you hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back shortly. Hey, folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. So the next story uh, is from FT Advisor, funnily enough. Um, Wealthsimple quits the UK market. So Wealthsimple is a Canadian robo-advisor which holds around uh, 15 billion Canadian dollars in assets and serves more than 2 million customers across North America. Uh, It announced its plan to sell the UK client book. It's been growing since 2017 to Money Farm one of its UK rivals. This will see 16,000 customers transfer from Wealthsimple to Money Farm, along with around £272 million sterling, so around about $320 million US before the end of the month. Uh, its UK business accounted for about 3% of its total assets under management, uh, and the deal follows the company's decision to focus on the Canadian market for the time being. Wealthsimple's UK proposition included an investment platform, uh, interest-free savings account, junior ISAs, uh, and pensions as well. Alongside it, the company employed a team of financial advisors who could provide advice no matter how big a customer's funds were. So, Ruby, we're going to come to you first on this one. Uh, you wrote about Wealthsimple's withdrawal uh, being one of a number of casualties to come in your piece. Uh, what did you mean by that? I did, yes, and it was very much based on, on what uh, experts were sort of suggesting to me, and I think it came out of the the kind of, I guess, climate of the market at the moment. Obviously, there's this overarching theme we have of international fintechs coming to the UK market, trying for a few years, finding it's too saturated and and jogging on. Um, But I think here it's important to look at the um, specific industry, robo-advice here. Um, You know, and I've said this before, but robo-advice has 
probably undergo one of the fastest story arcs in the wealth management sector. In less than five years, it's gone from a shiny new thing uh, with huge potential to something incredibly difficult to sustain. Um, I think that launches sort of came thick and fast back in 2015. And that was after Nutmeg launch, which is kind of seen as the industry's kind of example of, to follow. Um, but now we're not sort of seeing any new launches, really. We're only sort of seeing exits and acquisitions. Um, and so I think ultimately something that the industry has learned is that direct-to-consumer loan isn't sort of a sustainable business model. You know, you need B2B. And that's something that Nutmeg did. And that's something that Well Simple does as well in its, its other regions. Um, or B2B2C, which is sort of in my world, the financial advisor um, kind of using the platform to serve their clients. And so I think the, the reason the robo-advisor space has struggled is because the dots just aren't connected yet. Um, and by that, I mean the dots sort of between the providers, the financial advisors, and then the consumers or clients, because consumers are on a journey, right? Consumers don't start off with loads of money. They accumulate wealth over time. And I think the dots drawn between these different types of customers is still not there. So the platforms that are more accomplished still don't know how to get consumers early who don't have a lot of money and vice versa, Platforms that are going after those with with smaller amounts of money are struggling to keep that model and keep them interested and then keep them as they grow. Yeah, I think. It's, um, sorry, I was going to say, Ruby, that's a really interesting point. That the way you make money in robo or in wealth generally is ballooned towards the end of a customer's life. So I need to typically, historically, I would acquire an older customer who had more assets, and that's where I'd make my money. Um, but younger customers wanted better digital services. So if you build a better digital service, you get a lot of younger customers who don't have a lot of assets yet. So your time horizon for payback on that customer might be 20, 30 years before they're really starting to starting to contribute meaningfully to your to your business case. Uh, so that's like the the tension that seems to exist in the market, is, as you say. Um, we have seen another number of other fintechs leave markets as well. So we saw N26 leaving the US, uh, Robinhood has left the UK, um, Holvi's pulled out of the UK as well, um, and, and people will blame various things for it, but it's hard to enter new markets. Uh, interesting in your perspective in that, Kirsty, now that you're going into Europe, like people often underestimate regulation and how hard it is to do to do market entry. Yeah, absolutely. Like a whole new generation of disruptors are, I guess, learning that lesson that geographical expansion is hard. And, you know, that was, I think, a, a key reason why Republic decided to acquire Cedars was they really wanted to to um, have a foot in Europe and in the UK and didn't want to do it alone, um, didn't think that they had the the wherewithal and expertise to come and, and be that player and so wanted someone who who already knew the market, um, already had experience here um, to be the partner. Um, and it's funny, I think, you know, when you work in startups, you can kind of have, uh, you, I, I think you have amnesia for the early years as to what it really took to break through and you kind of remember all the kind of the 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 hard things, the kind of hiring people, the building something and all of that. But you forget the soft stuff, the, you know, the thousands of conversations you have in the market, the, you know, all these people that you meet that could be customers, could be partners that, and, you know, so many of those conversations go nowhere and a couple break through and have an outsized impact on, on your growth and adoption in the market. And, and that stuff just isn't transferable. You know, you have, kind of have to start again every time you go to a different jurisdiction even if you've got your kind of your platform and your processes built. Um, so I think, we're, you know, all, all of these, you know, the N26, the Roman Hoods are, are just learning that here in the UK. Hey, um, 
Talk a bit to me about uh, robo-advice generally, Tim. Do you think that uh, robo-advice is going to stick around or are we going to move away from this sort of digital platform that does what investment advisors used to do and move more towards that Robinhood uh, free trade model where it's more stocks and shares, it's more now, now, now? Or is it, you know, like, do they do they have a role to play or is this sort of digitizing an older model? I mean, when I look at the the robo-advisor market, I think you're seeing sort of two things going on currently, um, which explains some of these exits, which I think are, are kind of wider issues than the individual propositions themselves. Um, number one, um, obviously, there's a, a pandemic going on. Don't know if uh, everyone's heard of that. But uh, we um, obviously, people are focusing on their core business currently. So if, you know, talking about N26 and so forth, moving out of the UK to focus on their core business, that's a, a standard response to any kind of crisis, really. I think secondly, what we're seeing is a, a degree of maturity, which means that it's quite hard to enter the market anyway. Now, maybe the formal impact on the latter so that we, we get kind of the opportunity for, for growth again, once people have consolidated a bit. But I think that the, the market going forwards is going to be about people thinking differently about this. I mean, I absolutely love my money box. Um, app and so forth. But I think, you know, there's probably different ways of investing. I also now move across to Revolut to, to do all my crypto, uh, currently quite badly. Um, but I think that's, uh, you know, if it can merge that in or think about it a bit differently, then I think that's a, that's a way of looking at it. I don't think traditional robo-advisors are are going to find the UK market particularly easy currently. It's interesting, as you say, like traditional robo-advisors took the, robo, the advice model and put a digital front end on it. And what we're seeing now is all of those activities have been sort of unbundled and pop up in other fintech apps and services so bits of it are popping up everywhere uh ruby um closes out on this one uh, uh, robo advisors here to stay uh, do they have a spot in the market or are they actually being unbundled as a as a, an entire concept sure so i think like looking back to, to well simple as, as the example is a really interesting one um i went back to i went to visit their offices in hyde park um sort of back in beginning of 2020 and when i spoke to their then european boss toby tribal he Basically, says so stock trading's you know it's a bit of a game. We focus on long term investments. That's where our, our niche is. Um, but it's actually realizing its home country in Canada that that's just not sustainable. And so they have invested in a, a stock trading app, um, so, and they also allow crypto trading as well. So I think the reality is emerging that going in straight away um, with with robo advice for longer term assets it just isn't attracting enough attention. It's not engaging people from a young enough age. And so I think that players are realising they need to think out the channel um, to capture customers as their wealth grows. Um, I think that's kind of what what players are taking. And, and that's just, Wellsimple is a great example of that because you look at Canada, that's the way their um, offerings evolved. And if you look at, you know, they've got around 8.8 .8 billion in assets. Uh, that's in, in pounds. Uh, I think in Canadian dollars, it's about 20, 12 billion. And then if you look at, say, Money Farm, the acquirer, it's the U UK business that has 2 billion um, in assets. So it's still doing very, very well in its home country. So it shows that it can work as long as it evolves and diversifies. I think it depends on the how the regulation evolves because, um, you know, uh, certain types of investment products are only accessible to um uh, to sophisticated investors that are clusters, you know, uh, sophisticated investors, um, things like investing in, in private companies, for example, um, currently working with uh, a company that allows uh, individual consumers to invest in private uh, companies, right, um, that aren't listed um, and things like that, you know, the, the, the changing definitions around what is sophisticated, what isn't that that's probably going to become an opportunity going forward as well. 
It's going to be an interesting one to watch. And uh, as you say, Ruby, the the problem with uh, robo-advisor is it has an engagement problem. Like it's, it's almost like buying a mortgage. It's a big old commitment. And then I just kind of have to leave it alone. And even mortgages, I change every two years. The perfect robo-advisor customer almost never logs in and leaves it alone. Uh, and the, for the average investor, that's a good thing because the robo-advisors will probably outperform anybody trying to trade or time the market. But that creates an engagement issue issue like it, it's just that i don't do anything with it and in the days of now 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 attention 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 it's, it's kind of hard to stand out in that world so they've got a, a problem to solve but they i guess the the guy from well simple you interviewed has a point like it's in most customers interests to just keep putting the money there and leave it alone and let somebody else get on with it um so how those tensions will be managed especially if we have a stock market crash um then it's going to be going to be really interesting uh, if you are interested in more information on the Canadian fintech ecosystem, then keep an eye out for our chat with the National Bank of Canada dropping on the Fintech Insider podcast feed this Friday. Go Canada. All right, next story uh, comes from Altfy, and it's about Zopa pulling out of peer-to-peer consumer lending. So um, Zopa was a pioneer in P2P lending, uh, but it's uh, pulling its platform after 16 years in a bid to focus on its growing bank and credit card business. Zopa Bank, the company's 18-month-old neobank business, will be buying the retail PSP loan portfolio at face value from the firm's 60,000 investors, and they'll receive their investment balances by the end of January 22. Uh, the explanation given for the closure of peer-to-peer business uh, are the twin effects of tighter regulation of peer-to-peer lending since 2018 and a growing negative retail investor sentiment towards peer-to-peer during the pandemic. Uh, the CEO told Opfy that the reputation of the industry suffered after a number of platform failures such as Lendy uh, left thousands of investments out of pocket. Uh, Zopa launched in 2005 as a consumer marketplace lender funded by retail investors, and since then it's lent over more than £6 billion sterling. Uh, Kirsty, there are some similarities between the peer-to-peer lenders and the equity crowdfunding space. What's, what's your take on this news? Yeah, I think it's a sad outcome here in that essentially the Zopa's moving away from a retail customer experience. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm interested to hear them reference the sort of sentiment. I, I, I don't know how big a part that has played in it, but we've We've seen that the regulation in this space has made it harder and therefore like more expensive um, for platforms like Zopa, like Ratesetter as well, to service retail investors. You know, meanwhile, they've got all these institutional lenders who are, have moved, moved into the space quite early on you know, and are happy to um, fund the loans through the platforms. Just kind of at, at that point, of course, it makes sort of business commercial sense to move away from retail. Like why would you kind of keep... Retail is hard. You know, we deal with this all the time. It's a really hard segment to serve and make profitable. Um, if you've got all this, you know, institutional capital available for this and, you know, the regulator is making it even harder, like, of course, you're going to move away. Um, now I know that FCA came under, um, scrutiny for regulating kind of peer to peer lending after the collapse of, um, I think it was like London and Capital Finance was the first big one. Um, and they kind of, I, I'm worried they had a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to that in that they, in, in making it so hard then for all the other platforms to serve the retail customer in this space. Um, you know, I understand they have a, a job and a hard job to protect, protect the consumer. 
Um, but one of their other objectives is also to sort of promote promote competition and uh, in the interest of consumers and ensure they've got choice. Um, and essentially what they've done here is, is remove a choice for, for retail consumers. Yeah, it's interesting as an asset class, buying lending is something that's now a little bit harder to do. Um, but Ruby, um, what are your thoughts on, on what this means for the for the future of peer-to-peer lending? I mean, this is one of the OG peer-to-peer lenders, and it seems like, is the business model dead, or is it just the nature of the regulation here, as, as, as uh, Kirsty was pointing to, um, and then some of the optics around it? Yeah, I think there's a, a number of like really interesting things about this. And I, I kind of go back to this quote um, that I've I've sort of cited in the past by Ravi Anand, um, Managing Director of, of uh, ThinkCats, the UK lender. Um, and, and they said, oh, it's, it is very hard to scale lending through crowd, crowdfunded money. Um, and then he said sort of, peer-to-peer was a moment in time um, response following the financial crisis. And I think that's what's interesting to look at is that it was a reaction. And then obviously the regulator reacted too. And and quite rightly, in a lot of ways, it was a huge, a huge deal. It affected a lot of people, um, the London Capital Finance, um, I guess you call it a scandal in the end. Um, you know, and then if we look now, there's this question of does the pandemic impact here to be lending? But actually, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, well, it's not really like the financial crash because this time we've had the massive furlough scheme. So, you know, there's been a huge amount of support for people this time around, like there wasn't back when the financial crash happened quite in the same way. You know, all the banks kind of got held up in the financial crash and and money was put into them. But when it comes to this time around with the pandemic, there's been a lot of um, government support schemes for people. And I think if we didn't have those government support schemes, then definitely there would be probably Zopa, I would think Zopa would still be in the market and there might even be some new players entering it. Because um, that sort of gap of funding would have definitely sent ripples through the economy for years, I think. That funding gap was was such a crucial point. And in the US as well, they had a lot of peer-to-peer lenders that popped up around, again, the post-financial crisis. Um, I'm thinking about Prosper and, and others like it, um, that then were the darlings of the first wave of fintech. They sort of predate the neobanks and challenger banks, but they hit public markets and then their, their valuations really declined as everybody realized um, they hadn't invented something new. This was a lending business. And the, the laws of gravity and lending are, it's about net interest margin. It's the difference between my cost of funding, how much it costs me to fund my balance sheet, and how much I can lend for minus my operating costs. It's, it's, it's a simple equation. And unfortunately, sort of uh, running something where you were trying to get funding from the consumers, there just wasn't enough capital. So a lot of those peer-to-peer business ended up, you know, 80 to 90% of their book was funded by uh, professional investors and asset managers and so on. So this just looked like a lending business that was quite small. Um, that that no longer had that gap in the market once the financial crisis en- exited uh, and the banks entered. And of course, a banking license is a license to print money. You can make it up. So you uh, get deposits and through fractional reserve, of course, then you can make up money to lend it to people in a way that uh, these lenders can't. They have a completely different cost of fund. Um, the, the bank is only paying for the cost of its deposits at 0.05%, uh, whereas buying it from the market might be might be a lot more expensive than that. So it's going to be interesting to see if peer-to-peer has a future. Kosti, some, some thoughts from you on this one. Um, do you think that peer-to-peer um, and or like buying 
debt as an asset class might have a future uh, in private markets for consumer, and maybe it needs repackaging. Because uh, in financial markets, buying debt is is one of the biggest booms of the past um, five to ten years, as as you know, non banks have looked to buy that asset class. Yeah, I mean, we, we've had such a long period of sort of low interest rates that it's not been you know, an area of particular interest. Um, but um, you know, maybe that changes going forward. Uh, clearly, it needs to be repackaged in a way that makes it access, you know, accessible to the consumer in in a way that keeps the cost low enough that that someone can serve them. And, and maybe that's back to your your robo advisors, I guess. Indeed, this is going to be a story that runs and runs, I think. And Zopa's raised some recent funding as well, Tim. They raised uh, around $300 million at a billion valuation. They got a banking license. They've they've kind of scrappily pulled this one off. So shout out to those guys. What are your thoughts on Zopa itself going forward? Well, I think, um, you know, as you said earlier, they're, they're one of the OGs of this, this field, right? Um, that comes with some advantages, but also some baggage in the sense that... Um, you know, they're going through a pivot um, to banking currently. And pivoting is not a bad thing as long as it's done well. And it sounds like they've thought this one through and they've moved to where the money is. And I always say, you know, got to follow the profit if you're going to pivot effectively. Um, so I think, you know, going forwards, if this is where they believe the best profit is, then it could be an effective pivot. Although equally, making profit in retail banking particularly is also quite tricky. So, you know, uh, I hope they've uh, done all the modeling, but at least if they've built scale through their existing business, then they can start at the scale, which is obviously what you need to start generating significant profit in banking. Yeah, and and, uh, that's they've got the beginnings of scale. They've got a brand that people have heard of um, and they've potentially got uh, sort of a, a good bit of timing as well uh, as, as they sort of push towards profitability on the back of um, probably something we'll cover next week, which is um, Monzo who's just uh, closed its uh, most recent funding round and again, is, is seems to be getting its mojo back. Um, Ruby, last thoughts from you on this. Is is the UK fintech scene getting its mojo back? It felt like for a little while you know, the, it was all about the US, but maybe that's changed. Yeah, maybe. I, I think that actually the pandemic has done a huge favour to, to a lot of the big fintech names that perhaps were always being pulled up as, oh, can fintech ever make a profit? Um, I think the pandemic has been a really good stress test in a lot of ways um, to help fintechs really respond to to something that they never thought they were going to have to respond to. And it's made a lot of them evolve hugely. And I think that's not probably not a new thing to say. I think people have, have been saying that for a little while now, but I think that's what's then enabled certain companies to get their mojo back as it were and I think Monzo's decision to sort of like put the brakes on the US expansion I think was a good idea I think it was trying to do too much at once and I think you know so individual actions like that will also help uh, Vintex to just sort of focus on that one space and and do it right and and make a lot of money off it I guess here all right it's time for the part of the show where we quickly round up some other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover Tim do you want to get us started Sure. Uh, Majority raises $27 million for Migrant Mobile Banking Service. This one's from Finextra. So Majority is set to boost access to its mobile banking service for migrants in the US after closing this Series A funding round, which brings their total funding to date to $48 million. Majority itself was founded in 2019 as a mobile banking service for migrants and initially started operations in Texas and Florida, focused on the Nigerian and Cuban communities. Uh, Didn't know there was a huge Nigerian population in uh, Texas and Florida, so that's something new for me. Uh, Now the service is available for residents in all U.S. states with additional products for Mexicans, Cameroonians, Colombians, Ethiopians, Ghanaians, and Kenyans. For $5 per month, 
members in the US get access to a, a FIDIC insured account with early direct deposit and no overdraft fees. The interesting thing about this one is it's an example of uh, social innovation, which is very close to my heart, um, which is that you're taking a social problem from migrants being able to access banking services, um, usually because of a lack of address or, or approved identity, uh, and providing a solution to it, which then obviously solves the social problem. So, yeah, super excited about this one to see where it goes. And the model of a fee per month as well is something we see with a lot of these uh, these types of NEOs and challenges in the US, and long may we see more of it because uh, it starts out in a, in a good place revenue-wise. The next story we didn't have time to cover is Funding Circle launching an embedded finance solution, uh, which will allow borrowers to apply for peer-to-peer loans up to the value of £500,000 through a series of partner websites. Uh, websites such as Funding Options and Capitalize are the first ones to add this to their websites. Uh, they've also teased an exciting pipeline of partnerships over the next 12 months, um, and the tool is powered by some of Funding Circle's uh, machine learning and instant decisions technology. What that does is it allows customers to apply for a loan in minutes, receive a decision in seconds, and have the money in their account in 24 hours. Uh, To find out more about this, we reached out to Lisa Jacobs, who is the CEO of Funding Circle. We are really excited about launching our first embedded finance solution. We have been innovating and building great technology to enable seamless and uh, fast small business unsecured lending for the last decade. And now we're using that platform to enable our partners to do the same and provide that instant decision lending um, technology through their own native environment. And we think that's game changing for our partners and for small businesses. They can find finance where they're looking for it. Um, And we're looking forward to expanding it over the next year or so with a number of other partners. Thank you so much, Lisa. All right, um, Tim, there's another one we didn't have time to cover. Yes, uh, Monzo valuation hits $4.5 billion on back of drawing thousands of new customers. Go Monzo. British digital bank Monzo's valuation has surged to $4.5 billion, an increase of more than 200% since the beginning of 2021. The rising valuation follows a $500 million funding round led by Abu Dhabi Growth Fund and backed by new investors, uh, AlphaWay Ventures and existing shareholders, Axel and Goodwater. The Challenger Bank, which is exploring new products such as buy now, pay later services and potentially cryptocurrencies, was valued at only $1.25 billion in February after tumbling from $2 billion in 2019 because of the pandemic. It has now reached 5 million customers with around 100,000 joining each month. In addition, it is exploring new products such as a platform for retail investors to invest in stocks, sources told the Financial Times. This will include cryptocurrency trading, although this is only at an exploratory stage. I think my uh, cryptocurrency trading is only at an exploratory mm-hmm. stage, so I think uh, I'll probably have to stay clear of that one. But good for Monzo. Sounds cool. They've still got a cool brand, still massively relevant in the UK market. Uh, surprised that they maybe lost um, a bit of value during the pandemic because I thought people would, would perhaps shift to a, a more digital-focused bank. But what do I know? They they had a down round, which uh, is is always considered the, the kiss of death because they weren't driving revenue momentum, but they've shipped some new products and, the, and they're getting that revenue momentum. Um, and in 2021, over 40% of their active customers were using Monzo as their main account, which is up 10%. So everybody's like, how many people are using as this their main account? 
It's 40%. Um, and the average user has 30 friends on Monzo and 83% of active customers enable peer-to-peer payments within the first year. Um, so really interesting stats that have come out of the back of this from the various press coverage. But the one that stuck out to me is Monzo spends £2, so about $3, per active user per year to run its infrastructure, which is at least 10x lower than most of its incumbents costs. Um, and we share a lot of DNA with those guys. So shout out to them for, for, doing, for doing so well. Um, but also uh, really, really excited to see UK fintech being back. Um, it is time for our and finally story. Let's bring everybody back for this final story of the week. Harrods uh, is a retail store that has agreed to a tie-up with Klarna on buy now, pay later. And of course, Harrods, if you're not familiar, is a famous Knightsbridge store in London, uh, famed for its fancy goods and its fancy stuff. So in-store shoppers will be able to use Klarna's pay-in-three payment options for beauty purchases, and further departments are set to roll it out. The service will also be available at their beauty locations online. Uh, Founded as a family shop in East London in the 19th century, the Knightsbridge department store has grown to be recognized all over the world. You might have seen this in airports sometimes when you travel. It's that thing. Um, Several of its departments, including seasonal Christmas department and food halls, are well-known across the world, as we say. Um, So uh, is everything buy now, pay later now? Ruby? Apparently so. I I quite liked um, the Daily Mail's little bit on this one where they said, now you can spread cost of £21,500 perfume over three payments that are £7,167 each. Um, I don't know who this is actually marketing to because surely once you've got that much money, you just spend it all in one. I don't know someone who wouldn't be able to afford a 21 and a half grand perfume, but would be able to afford paying three lots of seven grand. I mean, from what I understand, the most expensive item ever sold at Harrods was a, a yacht for $165 million. So I think if I use buy now, pay later, I might be able to pay that back in about 4,000 years or something. So maybe it makes that accessible to me if I somehow live forever. With that luxury... No, just keep up, keep up your crypto trading. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what you're going to do. <laughs> uh, that luxury yacht was also called Project Mars, which um, I wonder if it was bought by one Elon Musk. Who knows? Um, I, there is something kind of interesting about uh, buy now, pay later in physical retail, we always had sort of um, the, the the concept of uh, point of sale finance, but the this is Klarna really entering that physical retail space. Any any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I was just going to say it's an interesting tie up. I wonder, you know, it's a real probably a real coup for Klarna in terms of um, moving itself into this sort of uh, brand, attaching itself to this sort of very prestigious brand. But I wonder as well if for Harrods, it's a uh, you know they, they've seen downturn in sales as well. Uh, you know, are they are they thinking that something more digital and and uh, a more digital brand here and something that allows their customers to to spread that cost over will will somehow encourage more spending? Well, if it's encouraged more spending on on low ticket items, maybe it works on high ticket items. Who knows? Um, we'll we'll we'll. What we'll do is we'll use the Loop app to club together, <laughs> and, we get the and then we'll use Klarna to get that yacht. Is, is that what we're doing? I think we, we've got a plan here. We need a social network, and we need buy now, pay later, and we're the most fintech thing ever. Uh, but also, I was just going to add as well before, like we should definitely acknowledge that the danger of debt that this is now encouraging. Obviously, you know, Klarna and other buy now, pay later services have been under a lot of uh, scrutiny for this, and it seems like quite an interesting move. Um, to allow people to to purchase such heavy ticket items, because um, that surely will 
offer quite a big risk of debt. Yeah, I wonder if there's an upper limit here and that's why they started in beauty and it's um, a maximum um, payment amounts and, and value amounts. Because yeah, if, if I'm uh, signing up for paying three over something that's £20,000 sterling or, or $30,000, then uh, can I afford to pay that? And how do they know that I can afford to pay that? So that's a, you know, uh, and am I somebody that is credit worthy enough to want to, even if I can afford it, do do I do that? So there's a bunch of questions, I think, that um, that we need to unpack. And uh, buy now, pay later does certainly risk being the next um, big scandal in, in all things credit if it's not careful. So uh, I know the folks at Klarna and, and many other places are working hard to prevent that. So let's hope they do. Uh, that wraps up this week's news shows. Thank you so much to our guests. Where can people find find out more about you. Let's start with Kirsty. Uh, Kirsty Grant on LinkedIn is the best way to get me. Uh, Ruby. Sure. Uh, Ruby Hinchliffe on Twitter is my handle and then ftadvisor.com is our um, news website. So you can read me there daily. Awesome. Tim. Uh, I'm also on that LinkedIn thing. So Tim Hurd, spelled H-E-A-R-D, not like a herd of sheep. Oh, like some, like I overheard it, but it's not. I'm not with the herd. I yeah. Get you. So my sister's misheard. Yes, I get you. I get you. All right. Uh, <laughs> I just got that. <laughs> uh, as for me, you'll find me at sytaylor on Twitter or at 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Uh, bye for now. <laughs>